Welcome to the News Items Podcast. As our regular listeners know, we post episodes every Monday through Thursday afternoon. But on some Fridays, we release one of our interviews, unedited and in its entirety, for you to listen to. Today, it's an interview with Robin Wigglesworth of the Financial Times, whose work I follow carefully, and you should as well. Welcome to the News Items Podcast. We're really pleased to have as our guest today, Robin Wigglesworth. Robin is the FT's global finance correspondent based in Oslo, Norway, which we're going to ask about shortly. He focuses on the biggest trends, reshaping markets, investing in finance more broadly across the world, with a particular focus on technological disruption and quantitative investing and writing long-form features, analyses, profiles, and columns. He is also, on top of all that, the author of the forthcoming book, Trillions. Robin, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you very much for inviting me. I'm honored. (laughs) Uh, I wanted to ask first if you're the global finance correspondent uh, for the Financial Times, arguably the leading financial newspaper in the world, how in the world did you convince your editors that Oslo was where you should be? Well, I can neither confirm nor deny that having any incriminating photographs of my <laughs> bosses in London. Uh, it boiled down to the fact that we are a global newspaper. Uh, and I used to be based in New York for the you know four or five years. Uh, I was the US Marcus editor. So I led their Marcus and investing team over there. And then they wanted me to do more of a global roaming role. And I'm from Oslo originally, and my wife is Norwegian, and I wanted the kids to grow up a little bit here. So I said I'd do the roaming role if, you know, I could have cheap subsidized childcare, (laughs) i.e. grandparents close by. So they said, yes, base it in Oslo and we'll figure it out. Of course, then the pandemic struck and there was very little roaming to do and very little seeing of the grandparents either. But but it's been a pretty civilized place to spend a pandemic. And... I mean, did you do all of your, I mean, your work continued uninterrupted. The quality of the work was was extraordinary. Did you just do all that the way everybody else did, Zoom and emails and texts and so? Well, everybody was in the same boat. So I, I started working remotely, obviously, before then. So I started using Zoom uh, and, and the Teams and so on before it was trendy, before I really, all the other cool kids started doing it. Uh, so I was already you know, in the saddle when the pandemic forced everybody else to do the same. So that almost felt like an advantage as in I wasn't it wasn't a new situation for me, but it was pretty hectic. I mean, 2020 was a crazy year, I think, for everybody. Um, I had the kids alone at home for a period because my wife is a nurse. And then also writing about you know, the near collapse of the financial system on the side was challenging. But it was fun. You know, frankly, journalism is one of those jobs where you want the jobs to be exciting. It's usually a bad thing for the world when your job is exciting, but it's uh, professionally very uh, invigorating. I wanted to ask you, our listeners are always interested in in how people ended up doing what they're doing. How did you end up as uh, a financial news correspondent? Was that something you always wanted to do or just kind of fell into it via reporting? Uh, it fell into it to a certain extent. I mean, I wanted to be a journalist purely because, you know, growing up seeing sort of images of the Gulf War and exciting things abroad, it felt like the most interesting thing I could do that was not living in Norway. You know, I, I always say boring is underrated, but when you're young, you don't want boring. So being a journalist sounded exciting. 
I don't think the dirty secret of the financial journalism world is that people never used to want to be financial journalists. You ended up going there because it was one of the few areas that actually offered quite a lot of jobs, at least back in the 2000s. There were lots of jobs in financial journalism at a time where everybody was retrenching almost every other area. Then I just frankly just fell in love with it. It it, it felt like discovering the hidden wiring behind the world. You suddenly understood how a little bit better how the world worked, or you felt a little bit less uh, oblivious to things going on. And, you know, since then, I stay with it, even though I joined the Financial Times as a Middle East correspondent, ironically. So your first assignment was in the Middle East? Yes, I was a, a Gulf correspondent in Abu Dhabi. So I actually did my interview for the first fun- pure financial job at the FT at an army barracks in Benghazi during the Libyan Civil War. Wow. Uh, you're also, aside from doing your regular work for the Financial Times, you've written a book called Trillions, um, which is going to be out when? Uh, Mid-October. Mid-October. So uh, tell us about the book. We tried to get an advanced copy, but we're unable to. So I haven't sadly read it, but I absolutely look forward to that. You know, the publisher is guarding it like a, a copy, an advanced copy of the State of the Union speech. Yeah. Um, so it, it boils down to, frankly, the index funds. They sound really boring because it's kind of a, it's the boring, safe choice that people are told to stick to, you know, put your money in an index fund. But, you know, my argument, my feeling is that this is genuinely one of the most enormously impactful financial revolutions we've seen for a very long time, certainly over the past half century, arguably for the past century. Uh, this is now, you know, just the public side that we know about is a $50 trillion industry that is vastly bigger than the entire venture capital industry, the entire hedge fund industry, and the entire private equity industry all put together. Mm. And that's just the public side. If you include you know, various sovereign wealth funds and pension funds will do this in-house without actually paying for a, a fund, you know, we're talking probably $25 trillion. That's a wow. mammoth amount of money that is we rewiring swaths of markets and how finance operates so for me i felt this was a story that wasn't really told by a lot of people because you know the the focus is naturally on the sort of the titanic people of finance the the hedge fund managers the private equity tycoons the index fund just seems dowdy but in fact it is the most important development we've seen in markets for the past half century did you focus on individuals uh who came up with these ideas or firms or how did you go about i mean covering a 50 trillion dollar business is is not something you say well okay i'll figure that out in a month no uh well i mean part of the industry is reasonably simple to get your head around uh in many ways it's you almost wonder why it didn't take off uh, any sooner but yes i for, for focus very much on the people and the way I, I the way i think of index funds it's like a new technology so these are the Steve Jobses, the, 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 the Wozniaks, uh, the Bill Gateses of finance. They invented something that was hugely, profoundly disruptive that changed the industry. And there's no coincidence that although they didn't invent index funds from garages in Palo Alto, they did work at second or third tier financial institutions right. that didn't have a vested interest in the continuity of the industry as it was built up. Right. So yes, I focus very much on the on the people that you know, invented this, that inspired it, invented it, and grew passive investing from 
you know, a crazy idea that got figuratively spat upon into this sort of world-conquering phenomenon. And what's the secret sauce? Is it just lower fees and a and a broad exposure to more, you know um, market categories? I guess you'd say it's a great question. Uh, it's hard to boil it down to one single thing. Uh, I mean, I would say uh, on the costs. So Jack Bogle, who founded Vanguard and sort of introduced the index fund to ordinary people, he always said it was the cost matters hypothesis that you know. Indexing is one of those few areas, or investing is one of the few areas in life where, generally speaking, it pays to be cheap. Right. And it pays to be lazy as well. One of the things that we know <laughs> is that That's people are really bad at investing. Right. I mean, one of those stunning things that, you know, the more time I spend covering finance, the more I realize how little I know. But the sad fact is that I see people who have dedicated their lives to ma- managing money. You know, they are people with PhDs in finance and economics and theoretical physics that spend their lives utterly devoted to trying to beat the markets. And even they can't do it consistently. Right. So investing is one of those few areas in life that, you know, it pays to be lazy, it pays to be cheap, and it pays to not overthink it. And, you know, as a lazy financial journalist, that, that appeals to me on a few levels. <laughs> I like that. One of the things that you've written about recently for the Financial Times is the rise now of ETFs becoming, I guess, a competitor to to index funds. Can you walk our listeners through the difference between the two and the import of uh, the rise of ETFs? Yeah, I mean, ETFs is sort of, if we think of index funds as the atomic bomb, of indexing, of passive investing. They were the first iteration. They still do the job uh, and they work you know, for you know, millions of people. We're still talking you know, close to $8 trillion in standard index mutual funds of some kind. ETFs is the hydrogen bomb. They're, they build on that, but they're a new technology. Essentially, you can think of the ETF as a wrapper, but a better wrapper in some respects, or a more controversial one, you can put almost anything into and make it tradable. So you can put everything from bonds to oil futures to gold, physical gold, and put it into an ETF and make it tradable. And that means that that is the ascendant technology of the index fund world, and frankly, the ascendant technology of the financial world at the moment. And that's instantly tradable, right? You don't have to wait till close of business. Exactly. I mean, at sometimes when there is acute stress in the financial markets, you might not get a price that you like for that ETF right. for a variety of reasons, but you can pretty much always trade them. Even at the depths of March 2020 or the global financial crisis, you know, when markets were you know, pretty much broken, you can still trade ETFs. One thing I, I when I'm doing news items, which I've been doing for five years, I, the the entire month of March 2020 was basically the end is nigh, you know, disaster loons, et cetera, et cetera. And there, were your work and many others included. It was just, it was a you know 20 uh, thoroughly depressing items every day for you know <laughs> a month, a month and a half. Yes. Um, but I I still don't think people understand how close we came in March 2020 to a, a real complete meltdown. Yes. Is that is that 
true? Is that I've, sometimes I think, well, maybe I'm exaggerating it. You know, the Fed was there and so on and so forth. But is was it how bad was it? I guess is my question. I, I think you're right. I think it was exceptionally bad and worse than many people realize. And frankly, worse than what some people now pretend. Right, right. That it's easy to forget about bad memories, whether it's March 2020 or you know the depths of the Eurozone crisis I covered for the Financial Times or the global financial crisis. Right. So it's kind of easier to not dwell on those bad memories. But you know, it's important to remember this. So in March 2020, you know, we had a, the worst global public health crisis in at least a century since right. the Spanish flu. We, because of the abrupt shutdown of the entire global economy, we by far had, you know, a sharper drop in economic activity than we've probably had ever in history. Right. I mean, this is worse, quicker than the Great Depression. Right. Uh, and, and, and comparable in severity, just very quickly. And then, you know, you can't do that without basically it echoing through the entire financial system. There were good things that really came out of that. First, that actually some of the stuff we did after the global financial crisis to stiffen the sinews of the banking sector have worked. Right. The, one, the, the dog that didn't bark, as it were, in March 2020 was that there were no real major fears that we were going to suffer a banking crisis as well. Right. But we were careening very quickly towards a financial crisis on top of an economic crisis and a public health crisis. Right. Where, you know, mutual funds, mass gating of mutual funds, and money market funds getting shut so people can't get access to their money and so on. You know, then maybe that rippling through to companies not make, being able to make payroll because they have their money to make payroll in mutual funds, in, in money market funds and so on. So there were a lot of other things in the non-bank part of the financial system that really got exposed in March. And I hope that we still need to, to will and hope we should tackle in the, in the coming years. That must have been uh, a busy, a busy time for you, right? You must have been filing every twenty minutes as things it felt exploded. Like that. Uh, it was, it was crazy. But you know, like I said, with journalism, sometimes, sadly, you know, the best times are the worst times. Yeah, totally. Um, and then just the adrenaline, like most jobs, when you're super busy, the adrenaline carries you through. Right. So I think you know by so summer I started uh, slowing down me and my colleagues. But you know when you work in a great team and the FT is a wonderfully collegiate, friendly place, you know you feel people have each other's backs and support. Right. So you do tag team people in and out of the battle, and right. that really helps. So it never really felt overwhelming, except for obviously you kind of worried about where the world was heading. Yeah, small issue. Uh, one of the most important uh, players, if you will, in uh, modern finance was David Swenson, uh, who headed up the uh, endowment fund at the Yale University. Um, it was funny, I, I'm a friend of John Schmidt, uh, who was the brother of Benno Schmidt Jr., who at the time was the Yale University president, and he looked at the endowment and said, like, hey, 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 we're in deep trouble here. Uh, and his father, Benno Schmidt Sr., was the, the what you would call the chief executive now of Jay Whitney and Company and a sort of a legendary venture capitalist. He actually invented the phrase venture capital after immediately after World War II. 
And uh, so he said, Dad, what do I do? And he said, you call uh, Richard Frankie at Nuveen, and he'll have some ideas. And Frankie recommended Swenson, and that's, as I understand it, how Swenson uh, made his way to Yale University. Anyway, he died recently. You wrote a wonderful obituary about him. And then in your column today, you talk about how we've sort of reached the end of an era, uh, sort of personified by David Swenson, and we're not quite sure what happens next. Can you tell us why Swenson was such a sort of seminal figure? And then we can talk about the remainder of your column from today. Yes. Well, I mean, Swenson was... In finance, like most fields, everybody stands on the shoulders of giants. Uh, but I think not a lot of people in investing today realize to what extent they stand on the shoulders, in some regard, respect, to David Swenson. When he came to Yale's endowment in 1985, he was somewhat unusual in that he had a PhD in economics. Right. That's commonplace these days, but it was not that common those days. I've right. talked to people, like your famous economics professors, that got turned down from banks because they didn't want people with good grades and certainly not, you know, eggheads with PhDs. Right. Right. Um, but he'd worked, but David Swenson had both a foot in academia and in the practicalities of finance because he'd worked at Solomon Brothers uh, and Lehman Brothers. Uh, he'd, he'd structured, you know, helped structure the first interest rate swap back in the day between the World Bank and RBM, which was a pioneering deal. So he was a, a hotshot young financier. He knew nothing about investing, however. But I think the fact that he was an unusually brilliant person of intellect and had no experience actually meant that he could start from first principles when he arrived at Yale. And what he realized that a lot of investors like a Yale or a pension fund or a foundation has got permanent money. The money is not going to go in and out at the drop of a hat. Right. And that means they can take a far longer term uh, view on how to invest. And that generally means less bonds, which are safe and steady and are great in times of crisis, but really don't have the long-term returns that let's say stocks do. And then actually go into uh, lock your money up for several years in what was then a nascent venture capital and private equity industry and benefit from being an early mover in those industries. Right. So that's what he did. And today, if you look at almost every single institutional investor, every sovereign wealth fund, every endowment, every private bank, in some respects, how they invest has been informed by David Swenson and then some of his, his colleagues and counterparts as well. So that's why he was this titanic figure. Uh, what he did was, you know, he wasn't a brilliant trader. He never traded, right. but he was a brilliant spotter of traders. He was a brilliant talent spotter. And he had the intellectual wherewithal to realize the optimal way for Yale to invest. And that inspired a generation that followed him. And if, you know, if the 40-year wave has crashed, not crashed, but has played itself out, um, you say today maybe Canada is a future model. I wondered if you could – it's hard for Americans to believe that Canada <laughs> is a model for anything other than a hockey team. But, uh, but maybe you could walk us through uh, the Canada model, if you will, that, that – uh, 
people think might be the future of investing at sovereign wealth and endowments and so on and so forth. Yes. Well, taking a step back, the the problem, as it were, is that we've, we're coming off a 40-year period where interest rates have been falling, and that's been kind of jet fuel between two massive uh, secular bull runs for stocks and bonds. Now, obviously, there have been some fairly big interruptions along the way, such as dot-com, global financial crisis, March 2020. But broadly speaking, equities and bonds have been heading the same way for a very long time. But that means that interest rates and and bond yields are about as low as mathematically and realistically they can go. And stock market valuations are close to or as high as they've ever been before. So that just means that even if you don't believe in the massive crash scenario, it just means that we've almost kind of borrowed returns from the future. Right. That, you know, because of lower interest rates, because of hyperactive monetary policy, we've we've borrowed some of those, the returns we would expect from the next decade, we've pushed them into the last few years, basically. Right. Right. So people think that from classic stocks and bonds, you're going to make a lot less money. Now, a lot of people obviously done what Swenson did, was, which was pile into hedge funds, private equity and venture capital and real estate and infrastructure. The problem is, if everybody does it, the opportunities, they winnow out. If right. everybody's doing this, then it's just not as attractive. So that means people are looking at ways to, you know, how can we still hit the kind of returns we've gotten used to over the past 40 years in a world that looks return starved? And the, the model that some people are alighting on is has been dubbed the Canadian model. And it basically go, it boils down to if you can't control the returns, you can control the costs. And you control the costs by doing more stuff in-house. So rather than paying a big private equity firm like Blackstone or KKR or Carlyle or a venture capital firm like Sequoia or Andreas and Horowitz to manage your money and taking a big cut of how much money they make, you do as much as possible in-house. And that's what the Canadians have been doing for a little over a decade now. And we're starting to see happen a little bit more among some of the European pension funds some of the Australian pension funds. So it starts with them co-investing alongside a private equity firm. Let's say pension fund ABC in Canada has a really good relationship with Blackstone. They say, well, we'll invest in your fund as long as you allow us to co-invest alongside of you outside of the fund in your next big deal. And we don't pay fees on that. So you manage that. We'll pay you for that. But we want to be able to invest alongside you, not just through your fund. Right. Now, the next step of that is disintermediating private equity even further and investing directly themselves. So you have to have internal teams to do that. So it's expensive, it's complicated, and it's a bit of a headache. But that seems to be the way that some people think the investing world is going to be heading slowly for the next decade. Another column you wrote recently was about a University of Arizona professor uh, and the moonshot I guess, theory of investing. Would you walk our listeners through that? I, I, I think a lot of people are interested in Kathy Woods and what's happened with yeah. her. Well, so it boils down to, so this is research done by a professor called Hendrik Bessenbinder at State University of Arizona, which is just absolutely fascinating. So we've long known that the returns in the stock markets are skewed in that a few companies account for a big chunk of the gains. Uh, we have known this about individual investors as well. Like sometimes an investor can have nine terrible stock picks, but if he plays a blinder with a tenth one, then all is forgiven. 
Right. One could argue even people like you know Warren Buffett owes his career to having gotten in early on Geico back in the day alongside his mentor. Right. And then once you have one big winner, that sustains you for a very long time. Right. But Henrik Bessenbinder showed quantitatively for the first time just how enormously skewed the returns are, where the vast majority of U.S. stocks that have listed in the U.S. stock market over the you know past hundred years have returned less in treasury bills, have either lost money or returned less than just keeping your money in treasury bills. And only a few percent, I think 4,000 out of 50,000 companies account for all the net wealth created by the US stock market over the past century. And then he replicated that for uh, the global stocks as well. The reason why people call him sort of the moonshot professor, as it were, is slightly unfair. And you know, I, maybe I, uh, you know, cause this to a certain extent, but his research is a real Rorschach test. You know, for passive investing fans, his research shows how hard it is to find these stock market winners. So why try? Why find try to find the needle when you just buy the entire haystack and you know you'll do fine? Right. But for people like Kathy Wood at ARK, Bailey Gifford, a very similar, very successful growth uh, investor in the UK, you know, SoftBank in Japan as well, for that matter, Tiger Global, a big hedge fund, you know, to varying degrees, uh, they have, I think, internalized the lessons that actually you spray money at uh, a lot of very disruptive long shot companies. And you accept that some of them are not going to work out because the few that will could become such mega returners that it just swamps everything. So how much you know he, he should be interpreted to speak for either side of this very contentious debate is is questionable he himself just does not want to take a side but i've seen people on both sides claim him for their own as it were do you know him personally well i spoke to him for my article yeah no oh, but you, you hadn't met him or Sadly, not in the era of pandemics. No. Uh, it's all, <laughs> no, it's all phone maybe, calls and Zooms. Maybe before uh, that. Um, you also did a piece recently about a major shift as momentum and value collide. I wondered if you would take our walk our listeners through that column, because I thought it was particularly interesting. Yes, uh, that one seemed to resonate. It was interesting. Uh, so I, I'm you know, a massive nerd, and I always wanted to be a physicist, but I wasn't really smart enough to be anything other than a mediocre physicist. But maybe that's why I gravitated towards you know, finance, financial journalism. And in finance, you know, there's been this movement to sort of try to turn it into science, basically quants. And they have, over the past few decades, instead of looking at the stock market through the prism of industries or geographies, like here's the US stock market, here's a Chinese stock market, or here's an oil company and there's a bank. They look at it through the prism of what they call factors, which is it boils down to the financial characteristics of stocks. Now, it's just one approach, but it is definitely gaining in ascendance as a more multicolored way of looking at the world rather than if you think of looking at the world through industries that's black and white if you do it through factors as well you get a bit more color in your image so the main factors that people boil this down to is size it boils down to small companies tend to do better than big companies in the long run uh, value cheap companies tend to do better than expensive companies in the long run quality which is you know, companies are well-fortified balance sheets, lots of cash, 
very steady margins. Uh, they tend to do well over time. And momentum, that oddly enough, and you know, this is one of the more controversial uh, factors, but companies that are going up a lot tend to continue to go up a lot. And companies that are falling tend to fall a lot more. And by harnessing these factors, you can, in theory, and has work and practice in the long run at least, uh, generate above market gains by just, for example, systematically buying small companies and avoiding big companies or just buying um, uh, cheap companies rather than expensive companies. So value and momentum are typically the yin and yang of factors. They're in opposition. Because obviously you can't be a cheap company for long because if you keep rising because you're a momentum stock, then you're no longer cheap. Right. So they typically work as different factors. So if you're an investor and you want a balanced approach, you might actually buy a bit of a momentum factor and the value factor. And then you'll have a sort of balanced countervailing portfolio. What is unusual now is that value has gone through an absolutely horrific decade. Value has these periods where it does badly. Most famous are the dot-com period, where obviously everybody wanted sexy tech stocks and value companies, boring, staid value companies did badly. But value after the financial crisis had its worst run in at least 200 years. Both in length and severity, this was just an absolute nightmare. You know, Even Warren Buffett has done badly lately because of the struggles of value stocks. Right. But since we got the vaccines in November 2020, people think this is great for value. All these left for dead companies are going to do fantastic. Well, so value stocks have rallied hard and are now becoming momentum stocks. <laughs> and this doesn't actually happen very often. This is like, you know, the stars and moons aligning. This is, you know, this is an eclipse. Right. And it won't always last for long. It's only happened, I think, four or five times over the past couple of decades. But it might last for a little bit longer now because value has been so terrible for so long that those stocks can actually be momentum stocks for way longer than they have been in the past because they're so cheap. It will take a long time before they ever become expensive. That was probably a very long, very exhausting explanation of the history of factory investing and value momentum. I know, no. I, th I think... The thing about news items readers, and that's sort of at this time starting up this podcast, that's, you know, probably half of our listeners is that uh, I would say, you know, 80% of them uh, want to hear what you have to say, basically. So uh, you can go as long as you like. Oh, well, wow. that's 80%. Uh, that's better than I have in my own family. Uh, more than I have in my own family as well. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm at like 50, yeah. maybe 25% family of four. Anyway, I wanted to ask you, one of my sort of obsessions is that private equity, you know, it's just billions and billions and billions of dollars raised and too few deals. So too much money, too few deals. And I, I am uh, part of, a, I'm a member, I guess, of a group called Brain Science that meets uh, at MIT in the spring and in Stanford in the fall, obviously disrupted by the pandemic, uh, started by Reid Hoffman and sort of uh, brain science. All these brain scientists come and talk about uh, their work, and it's a fabulously interesting group. And the one at MIT, the most recent one I went to at MIT, which I guess was 2019, I walked around Central Square, which is where uh, MIT is in, in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And 
it, it was transformed. I grew up in Boston and it's just transformed from my youth. I mean, the streets basically paved with gold. Uh, and it sort of made me think like this is this Silicon Valley uh, came, you know, for life sciences, essentially. Um, and why isn't private equity all over this? And I wondered if that if that series of questions is correct or where do you think life sciences is in relation to private equity as opposed to venture capital? Uh, that's it's a great question. I, I, I know the private equity industry a little bit better than the VC industry, but broadly speaking, I, I suspect it has to do with return assumptions and risk tolerance. Right. The, the venture capital industry is set up to varying degrees to invest in very risky companies. Right. You know, you only need one really massive success in a portfolio of ten. Uh, private equity does not think that way. They do not want like they can suffer one deal going bad, but not two or three. So it's just an entirely different assumption. And also, private equity tends to be a little bit more price sensitive. Like venture capital has seen many times, a venture capital firm has seen many times that could you have paid too much to invest in Facebook <laughs> when it was private? No, you couldn't, right? I mean, there's literally people thought some of the funding rounds there were crazy. But, you know, in private equity, you know, the value you can extract is directly linked to how much money you pay. And the private equity industry and, and acquisition, the history of acquisitions in general, is littered with the corpses of terrible deals. <laughs> yes, indeed. So I think, especially in life sciences, it's just an industry that just leans more towards being attracted to VC than private equity. But I suspect we'll definitely see way more deals in that area. Like you say, the private equity industry has raised billions and billions of dollars that they seem to struggle to allocate at the moment. Yeah. And a lot of these life sciences and somewhat riskier companies are actually becoming reasonably mature now. And there is a natural point where a venture capital firm should and wants to hand off the company from their hands to the public markets or a private equity owner. Right. And I suspect we'll see more of that because clearly life sciences, you know, even before the pandemic was in hot area. I think now I think there's going to be a lot of interesting developments in that space. One thing that's emerging here is a, is a pretty, uh, the beginning of a very sharp backlash against private equity practices, I guess you would say. Um, there was a piece in The New Yorker recently about private equity uh, jacking up the cost of trailer parks. And we in the town I live in, in Fairfield, Connecticut, they're buying up homes to be rehab centers um, and sort of steamrolled, uh, you know, the local town council and stuff. And people were really, really upset about it. Um, Anti-Carlisle uh, billboards and you know posters all over the all over the town, and this is a town that you know would be uh, favorable to financial uh, institutions and investment operations. Do you see a uh, political backlash to private equity around the world? Do you see it in the U.S.? Do you see it in the U.K.? Do you see it at all or not? No, it's a huge topic that I almost feel should be even bigger than it is. That's yeah, what I think. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I try not to be 
too moralistic about things that happen in finance because you know <laughs> there's there's a I feel the world is very long on outrage and short of fact and analysis. So nobody can be entirely objective, but I do try to sort of take my emotions out of it. But the private equity industry, at the very least, has a massive public relations issue. And in practice, you know, every industry has bad actors. Journalism has got tons of terrible journalists. Uh, you know, banking, finance, private equity, there are bad actors there that have done bad things. Sometimes a private equity firm might get blamed for something bad that would have happened anyway. And you can't really see the counterfactual that maybe this company, rather than private equity coming in and sacking half the workers, if the private equity firm hadn't come in, they'd all be out of a job. Right. So you don't That's always see argument, that right? side of things. Right. But I think there are issues here, and I think they're particularly acute in the US for you know some niche tax reasons as well. But in the UK, in Germany, you know, it's. I think it was in 05, 06 that a German politician first called but private equity a bunch of locusts for mm. picking at the middle stand of Germany. Um, and in the UK, there's been a lot of sensitivity around this post-Brexit, where the pound fell, and obviously a lot of businesses were weak after Brexit, and then the pandemic hit, that there's been a backlash against private equity firms buying... Right. pedigreed old English companies on the cheap. That side of things, I have to admit, like I don't care if a chocolate maker in Norway or Britain is owned by a local Norwegian or not, really. I just care if it's well run for the community and creates jobs and prosperity for it, the ma optimal amount of people. So there is an element of, frankly, economic nationalism that you know can veer into distasteful areas. But is there a real case to answer that private equity does not necessarily help economic growth? Probably, yes. It might help economic dynamism. But I think you know, the lessons of the past 10, 20, 30 years is that there is a trade-off between prosperity and dynamism. And maybe we've erred too much on the side of dynamism over some inclusive capitalism, as people like to call it these days. I wanted to finish up with your tweet this morning. I think it was this morning in which you said, I've read a lot of financial history books on bubbles and manias. There have been some great ones over the centuries, but merely reading about it after the fact doesn't prepare you for just how stupendously stupid they are. Uh, <laughs> how stupendously stupid are we, do you suppose? That's hard to say. I mean, it's. I always say that picking my favorite bubble or stock market insanity is like picking your favorite child. <laughs> They're all just beautiful in their own unique way. Uh, I mean, one of my favorites was there was a sardine mania in Monterey many years ago. I can't remember exactly when. It's recounted in Seth Klarman's book, The Margin of Safety, which is a classic in the field, where you know people start trading sardine little boxes of sardine and the prices skyrocket and then one guy to celebrate a really good sardine deal actually opens a box and eats them and they're rotten and right. he turns to the seller and says look dude these are rotten sardines you sold me rotten sardines and the guy turns to him and said look you idiot these aren't eating sardines they're trading sardines <laughs> Which is just a great metaphor for how sometimes, you know, the price of an asset, whether it's stamps, 
sardines, stocks, bonds, art, whatever, can get completely divorced from any sort of realistic view of what that might be. And I think we are in one of those moments. Now, this mania could go on for a lot longer. I'm, let's say I'm wearier of calling it a bubble because I think bubble is an overused word. Bubbles means a lot of leverage and things are going to collapse immediately. And I actually right. think this could go on for two days, two years, 20 years longer. I, I, I don't know. I'm smart yeah. as people than me screw this up all the time. But I do feel very confident that this is a mania that we are right now in the middle of a mania moment that might deflate naturally at some point. But there is so many idiotic things going on. I mean, uh, the, the, the trigger for that tweet was Elon Musk talking about the song Baby Shark on Twitter because he's got a baby. And unfortunately, I've also got young children and know how kids love that very addictive, annoying song, Baby Shark. Right, but literally right. him tweeting about it sent the shares of Samsung, which owns a small stake in the song maker, up by 8%. Yes. Now, that is by any measure completely insane, stupendously yeah. stupid. And unfortunately, that is not an isolated example of the stupendous stupidity we see in markets all the time these days. Yeah. I My indicator is Time Warner or Warner Media which, you know, if it's being bought or sold or, you know, <laughs> dumped or whatever, then we're in the middle of something dicey at least. But I think the, the interesting, you know, one of the points that's been made to me by, you know, people in the private equity industry is, you know, it, it's, it may not be a bubble. It may just go on. Um, and it's, one person said to me, the, the Fed can't, raise rates because if they do so many dominoes tip over that they just have to cut the rates again um, and you know provide as much uh, quote quantitative easing as, as is needed to keep the whole house of cards up um, I don't know if that's true or not but I, it does strike me that if the Fed begins to tighten we'll have another taper tantrum and that will you know reverberate all the way into emerging markets and that ricochets back and I don't know how they get out of it. I really don't. Yeah, I think I think there's the, the nuance. I guess is can the Fed tighten? I think yes. Can they tighten a lot? No. I think we we all suffer from you know an anchoring effect of when we grew up. And I grew up in Norway in the eighties, when you know, inflation was crazy high, and interest rates were crazy high. So we think that was almost normal. When actually, if you look at the grand scheme of history. The 60s, 70s, 80s in stagflation we had then was unusual. Right. So uh, I do think that given the levels of debt around the world, you know, we're not going to see interest rates go up that high. In fact, we don't need to. The people raise interest rates to cool economic growth. And we don't want them to have to raise interest rates to 10% to cool economic growth. Right. If the Fed started you know, tapering now, I mean, they've already started talking about it. Yes. Um. But I agree that one of the reasons why I'm aware of calling this a bubble uh, is that I don't think interest rates are going back to where they were 15 years ago for the next generation, potentially. Right. That we'll be bumbling along between zero and three, four uh, percent for a very long time for all sorts of structural demographic reasons as well. Frankly, the baby boomers are retiring 
technology is a vastly deflationary force. The world is still global despite the efforts towards economic nationalization. So I think there are a lot of secular forces that keep interest rates and inflation pinned down for a while. We might have cyclical bounces either way, but yes, if, if the Fed raises interest rates a lot, then I'll have a really interesting job covering the fallout <laughs> i want to before i let you go i wanted to ask you one question which i asked you on the on the email but where are we in the norwegian uh elections in september do, do you have any insight there for us our again our news items list uh listeners news item subscribers like love obscure from from their point of view yeah. obscure uh political developments so are there any developments in norway that we should be alert to Well, obviously, the Norwegian elections, parliamentary elections coming up are vastly more important than the U.S. elections were in 2020. That obviously says itself, right? But uh, I don't think it's going to be a huge upset. Uh, Here in Norway, there is a ruling center-right coalition, uh, and they were looking pretty steady. uh, But uh, the prime minister broke her own coronavirus curfew rules which didn't look great. And it was very out of character for her. I have to say, you know, Norway is blessed with lots of fairly boring, competent politicians. Right. And that's generally speaking a good thing. And the Norwegian prime minister is the quintessential boring, competent politician. She's not charismatic, but she's got supremely good judgment. And this seemed to have just been what American friends call a brain fart. Uh, on her behalf, but it has cost her electorally. So now it looks like it'll be a what they call a red-green coalition that wins power. So that's the the Labour Party together with the, the Centre Party, but in reality is an agrarian, the Farmers Party, and then maybe the Socialist Left as well, which sounds scary to American listeners than it is for Norwegians. But the Socialist Left are essentially a slightly more left-wing Labour Party. So that's where the smart money is now. But maybe, maybe. If you want to play the odds, I think put the money on on the centre-right coalition surviving for another term. Is there any emerging right-wing movement similar to, say, AFD or Mr. Salvini in Italy or something like that? No. So we actually have a a, uh, a, a, a well-established right-wing party that actually inspired some of the European ones that came later. You have to... Maybe taking a step back, in Norway, right and left mean very different things than they do in the US. In right. that, like the right, the conservatives in Norway are probably centre-left Democrats. Right. Um, but in the seventies, there arose a new party that was anti-tax, anti-welfare, pro-old-school liberalism. So in Norway, that was a right-wing party, but right. it it was a liberal party in the economic sense and a social sense. Over time, that party that started as a sort of insurrection against social democracy has morphed into what we now recognize to be more of a classic anti-immigration, right-wing, nationalist party. Right. Now, broadly speaking, it is more respectable than some of its cousins around Europe. Right. So the equivalent in Sweden, the Swedish Democrats did grow out of a neo-Nazi movement. Right. The Norwegian version grew out of you know, anti-tax liberals, social liberals. 
so they just have very different genealogies. But that party was in government until recently with the, the centre-right coalition until they suffered a bit of a huff over policy disputes and left the government. Um, but they, I think, found, like many right-wing parties have found, or more insurrection parties, opposition parties, that it's a lot easier to be outside the tent pissing in than inside the tent. They found, you know, the messy practical compromises involved with actual governance to be difficult to deal with whilst keeping its voters happy. So they've lost a lot of voters, partially to, for example, the, the Farmers Party, the Centre Party, that might now get into government with uh, the Labour Party. And with that, I think we'll let you go. Thank you very, very much, Robin, for taking the time to talk with us. And we hope to have you back shortly before Trillions is released. Thank you very, very much for joining us. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for tuning in. News Items is produced by Christian Castro-Russell, Pierre Bienname, Anna Mazarakis, and Ali Rogers. Our theme music was composed by Billy Libby, and our recording engineer was Simran Singh. I'll be back on Monday with my co-host, Rebecca Darst, for a round of news and news analysis, and we'll see you then.